Culture doesn't want you to do a lot of stuff. Culture wants you to be a consumer. And you come to Burning Man and you're outside of culture and you're given permission to do almost anything you want. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Today, people all over the world know Burning Man as a spectacular semi-anarchic cultural festival where every August, as many as 80,000 questing spirits join up in Nevada's Black Rock Desert to create a temporary community in which money is no good and almost anything else goes. That includes the creation of massive otherworldly artworks from 20-foot-tall marionettes and roving pirate ships to decidedly adult fantasias that mix sex and spirituality. Famously, these artworks all come down at the end of the week if they aren't burned along with the event's fabled wooden man. What is less known, however, is that the entire enterprise actually started out as an artwork of sorts, created and then shaped by a group of counterculture artists striving for an alternative vision of society. One of those artists, Burning Man co-founder Will Roger, has recently released a book of the aerial photographs that for years he's been taking of the festival's architecture, an iconic city plan he was long personally responsible for building and then tearing down. Called Compass of the Ephemeral, the book is a terrific introduction to Burning Man and bomb for burners worldwide this year as the coronavirus pandemic has forced the 2020 edition online. To talk about Burning Man's past, its future, and its seismic impact on culture at large, I'm very happy to be joined on the podcast today by Will Roger. So thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Will. Where are you zooming in from right now? I live in a small town in, in uh, northern Nevada. It's about 12 miles from the Burning Man event site. About 120 people. We don't have a grocery store. We do have a gas station. There's no stoplights. I have a nice two-acre parcel that I've planted 70 trees. I have an aquaponic system. Wow. Uh, I have many gardens. And I'm, uh, right behind me is the entrance to a Zen garden that I'm making. It certainly sounds like you know how to build a, a paradise in the desert. So right now, in a normal year, Burning Man would already be underway on the windswept playa of Nevada's Black Rock Desert. So what would you be doing there in a normal year right now? It would be day two of the major buildup of mm -hmm. Black Rock City. I'm semi-retired from Burning Man. I was chairman of the board of the Burning Man Project for seven years. And many years ago, I was the director of desert operations. So I used to build Black Rock City until 2003. Right now, there, there'd be at least 300 workers in Gerlach. And at this point, they would start moving out from Gerlach to the event site. <laughs> and all the infrastructure for a city of 80,000 people, there's an enormous infrastructure that's put in prior to the event. So that takes about a month to build from the survey to the, the gates opening. And it takes about a month for it to clean up. And I used to be in charge of all of that, all the separate pieces that come together to create a safe and I would say unusual, probably the most unusual city for a week in the world. Uh, it's, it's a very powerful place. And it's in a very unlikely location. It's the largest flat expanse in North America, mm. the Black Rock Desert. And uh, the environment here is powerful. It's desert. 
And uh, I believe that that has a, a strong influence on, on the behavior of the citizens of Black Rock City. Before Burning Man entered your life, you were a photographer from Rochester, New York, where you spent the 80s and 90s teaching photography at the Rochester Institute of Technology. And you taught a class there called In Search of the Mystical Image. Yes. What was that about? The idea that, that uh, art is a powerful connection to creation energy. So artists create. And there's something mystical in that. I mean, there's a lot of self-searching that's required. And then from that, you project that outward in capturing the magic of the world. And it's still my intention today as an artist. I I do a a walk at sunset to take in the magic of of what it is to be on the planet, to see the magic of the sun, and and, uh, to understand that I'm just a, a part of this incredible mother earth that we that we live on and i'm curious how did you find yourself at burning man for the first time how did you <laughs> find yourself in the middle of the desert on the other side of the country from where you were professor for all these years well, well I, I left rit looking for something more as an artist so i moved to oakland california and a friend of mine rod garrett who is the black rock city designer the late rod garrett uh, he designed the incredible city plan that I photograph and show in my book. I, I started in a building that we renovated together and I built an art studio. It was called Provocative Portraits. And one day someone walked in, her name was Crimson Rose, and we immediately bonded. She's my wife now and, and my life partner. And she's also one of the six founders of, of Burning Man. She invited me to come out to Burning Man in uh, 1993. And uh, I was an artist in Oakland, struggling, you know, and I was pretty accomplished as a, as a camper, but there was something about the desert that was not appealing. So that first year, 1993, I said, no, I don't want to go. And then she came back uh, with incredible images and stories. And so the next year I went out with Crimson in 1994, it was so funny. I, I decided to be barefoot on the Black Rock and my skin did not uh, react kindly to the alkali salt flat and and my feet were all cut and just I could hardly walk. And back then, in the early 90s, Burning Man was a camp out with friends. It was just a bunch of people hanging out together. And um, so they took care of me. They put some like horse bomb on my feet and I laid back in a in a recliner and I noticed the mountains. And I thought, oh my goodness, this has got some stuff that I'm attracted to. And so from that moment on, I became a believer of the desert and I started to uh, explore a lot of the area around me. And it became an odyssey, a journey, a pilgrimage every year to come to Burning Man. Um, But that first year, the desert got me and now I live here. I mean, it's been a long, interesting transition, but uh, one that, that has changed my life. It's remarkable. Hmm. You know, the desert is an interesting place. If you, if you look into a lot of the religious dogma of, of the, the great religions, there's always stories about visions and, and incredible things happening in the desert. The desert has a magic, a, a mystical, ephemeral, numinous quality that you don't find in other places. So tell me, where did Burning Man come from originally? The late Larry Harvey 
1986, had some scrap wood with a, a friend of his, Jerry James, who was a carpenter, and they had young sons, and they decided to, to just cobble together a, like a six-foot man or an eight-foot figurative thing. <laughs> and they took it out to Baker Beach in San Francisco, where there was a tradition of beach burns on the solstices and equinoxes. The summer solstice, June 21st, 1986, was the first Burning Man. And that was attended by Jerry and Larry and their two kids. And then they noticed that when they lit it on fire on the beach, everyone abandoned their campfires and ran to the figurative Burning Man. And they thought, well, we got to do this next year. And so the next year they built a bigger one in 1987, 88, 89, it kept getting bigger. And then in 1990, it was a 40-foot man. And uh, neighbors that lived across in the high-rises called it in. And these state parks people came in and said, no, you can't burn that here. There's too much of a fire danger. And so they, they took it apart. They partied anyway, but they took it apart. And there was probably a few thousand people at that point on Baker Beach. And a group that had been there almost from the beginning, the Cacophony Society, they told Larry about a place, the Black Rock Desert, where they could burn it. It's 400 square miles of absolutely nothing. It's an alkali lake bed. So in 1990, a group of 70, about 75 people came up on Labor Day and they had just enough people to pull the 40-foot man upright. And uh, they, they partied for the weekend and then burned him on a Sunday night and went home on Labor Day. Then the next year, there was several hundred people. Then it was 1,000 people, then 2,000 people, then 4,000 people. Just to, just to go back a little bit, you mentioned the Cacophony Society. Who were they? A group of people on the edge of uh, fringes of culture that like to stir the, the cultural pot. They would have happenings, very interesting, non-traditional events, like a, a formal tuxedo tour of the tunnels under Oakland, for example. They would climb the pillars of the Bay Bridge and have a champagne toast. Their roots go back to, let's say, the Beatniks and then the Suicide Club, which was a group at San Francisco State University. And, and there's still people from the Cacophony Society engaged with Burning Man today. In fact, one of the six founders, uh, Michael Michael, is still part of the Cacophony Society. Their slogan is, you could already be a member. <laughs> Which wow. The original campers starting in 1990 had that DNA. And so it was the right people. And they attracted more of the right people. And, and so the Camp Out with Friends, which went until 1996, it became 8,000 people. And at that point, we needed to have rules and regulations and safety measures and law enforcement and health department and all of that. I brought all that in with my colleagues in 1997. From you know, reading your, your book, it seems that people couldn't resist driving incredibly fast through the desert and also firing all kinds of, you know, handguns and firearms, and, and it just got crazy. And, and then in 1996, which is really this inflection year, things got out of hand. So what was it that happened that earned it the reputation as being the world's most dangerous festival at the time? 
Well, all of the things you just said. I mean, <laughs> again, it was a bunch of people that weren't afraid, people that were excited to try new things, people that, uh, again, were on the edge of culture. And, and so a lot of antics, a lot of parody, a lot of making fun. We started to get theme camps and art cars and artists started coming in and building sculptures. And and uh, it became like this magical place where your art spirit would get stimulated and you'd feel creative and, and, and you'd feel in touch with the earth. Hmm. Isn't it interesting, Andrew, that sometimes the things that we crave are on the edge of life and death, like skydiving, hmm. like skiing down a cliff, like there's so many things that are part of our normal sports or recreation that are also dangerous. Well, Burning Man was that in a cultural way, okay? It was a dangerous culture. And, and um, again, at some point, we had to pull back on some of the freedoms of, that were too dangerous. And a lot of it had to do with driving. Hmm. One of the things I'm most proud of is that the six founders we very carefully crafted the rules and regulations so that the art spirit would be retained. And to, to this day, with an 80,000 population, it's the most creative place you could possibly be in the world. You may not like art. You might not think of yourself as an artist. And one week at Burning Man, you'll appreciate art and you'll be an artist. Rod Garrett, his design for Black Rock City is an architectural masterpiece. It's a beautifully carved crescent-shaped grid that opens to the east and to the rising sun. And you built this. It's a funny story. Uh, again, I lived in the building in Oakland where Rod lived upstairs. You know, he was an old friend of mine and a great designer, a brilliant, brilliant man. In 97, I accepted the job as desert operations director, thinking that I would be doing the same thing we've always been doing, draw a circle, have a beer. You know, there was no city design. And so then I had to apply for a Washoe County Festival permit. They needed 105 uh, regulatory stipulations that were almost impossible for us to achieve. I didn't have a staff. I didn't have uh, anything. But one of the things they needed right off the bat was a, a design, a city design, an event design. They called it a commercial campground design. I'm out in the desert with no phone, no radio, no internet, just trying to think, oh my God, how am I going to pull this off in three months? They wanted flush toilets. They wanted paved parking lots. They wanted street signs. We never had streets before. So this was all new to me. And so I call Rod and I go, Rod, I need a city design for Black Rock City this year and I need it quick. And I hung up the phone, you know. And uh, three days later, I get a call from Rod while I was in the office there. And he said, well, well, I haven't slept for three days, but I think I've got some ideas. Wow. And, and we went back and forth, but we, we settled on a rectilinear impression of it, which hugged the shoreline of, of the Alkali Flat in Wallapai Valley on the Fly Ranch. And uh, my friend Tony Coyote Perez-Benet, he started doing the survey. And he has continued. He's now the, the site superintendent, and he surveys Black Rock city to this day. So at the center of this entire city plan and elevated and visible from the entire city is the man, as the statue of Burning Man is affectionately called. What is the iconography of the man? How has this evolved over time? And what has it been like to build this 
again and again and again, and then burn it down. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Rod designed the city so that when you pass each street from the annular, the curved avenues, you get to see the man every time you go down the street. Hmm. The early design of the man actually goes back to the one on Baker Beach, which was, which was a design by Larry. And we've stuck with that design every year but one that we had this gigantic man, a hundred foot tall man. That was the only real departure. Wow. What's happened is it's become a great honor to be on the man build team. And so we get the best cabinet makers and carpenters. They put their hearts and all their knowledge into building it. You would be amazed at, at the beauty of the woodworking that goes into it. There's always a heart in the man. For many, many years, there was a smoke detector, which was really interesting. Because <laughs> those of us who knew, we could hear it go off when the man burned. So wow. that was really funny. But the man has basically changed very little. It's been embellished a bit. Certainly the neon has gotten more interesting. Uh, Nick Riddell has been the neon artist for many years. What does change every year is the base is called the pavilion, the base that the man stands on. And that's always theme-related. For any listeners who are not familiar with what the man looks like, it's like this atavistic, almost voodoo doll-style statue that towers above this pavilion, and it's marked by these almost tribal neon slashes and insignias. And it's a really powerful image. It really drills into your psyche. It is an iconic image. You know, people have tattoos of it. There's a lot of art, a lot of jewelry. It's also, I want to point out that it's genderless. It's burning human, really. But (laughs) man is short for that, so it's burning man. Uh, A gender was never really applied. And so why burn it? Oh, it's letting go. That would be a great question for my wife, Crimson Rose. She's been in charge of the man burn since the beginning. The idea that you're making art for a community and then letting it go, and fire in itself is very transmutive. It's an interesting element because you can see it, but you can't touch it, and it's moving and all of that. So it has a magic to it. So lighting it and letting it go and uh, releasing it is part of the mysticism and also part of the yearly cycle. For those of us who are really strongly in the Burning Man community, lighting the man and letting it go is our new year. Tell me more about Crimson Rose's choreography around the burn. What is the role? Because she plays a fairly complicated role in not only the burn, but also its memorialization. Well, they call her the naked fire goddess. And that goes way back to the early days when when she would dance naked and then light the man. And then Mm -hmm. I had the honor of dancing with her and and lighting the man for a couple of years back in the early 90s. We used to do performance together, uh, fire performances. Uh, I would do Dragon's Breath and she would uh, light me on fire with alcohol and stuff like that. Hmm. The ignition of the man became more and more complicated as we put in more pyrotechnics. It's all done electronically. So she couldn't dance around the man uh, any longer and light him. But she organized a group called the Fire Conclave. And they're fire dancers from all over the world. And they dance around the man for about 20 minutes before the man's arms go up and then the pyrotechnics ignite him. And then when you say the arms go up, they actually mechanically raise to the sky. Am I right? Yeah. 
So the man, as it's called, is the centerpiece of the city grid, but it's hardly the only sculpture in Burning Man. In fact, it's it's surrounded by a whole panoply of all these hundreds of fantastical sculptures that people are encouraged to climb and and enter and otherwise engage with. How is this art program that exists around it put together? What is the logic for the art program? It's amazing. Again, the roots of it go back to the Cacophony Society in the early 90s when someone from Houston drove a shark car up and there was an art car and Pepe Ozan uh, made these mud furnaces that he did operas around. And so people saw that and they would go home and make something and then bring it out. There's a team camp started again in the early 90s and then they had art. There's no judging of, of what art is at Burning Man. It's, it, there's no stanchions around it. Everything was interactive. And so the idea of interactive art is the, the key element People are encouraged to climb on it and play with it and push the buttons and not just see it, but be part of it. Again, it's that art spirit that's in all of us. And Burning Man brings it out in everyone. So what's happened is it became kind of serendipitous and also competitive, but in a non-competitive way. One artist would do this big thing and then another artist would come out and do something more grand and then... Pretty soon, their careers were taking off because of the art that we're making at Burning Man. And then one of the key artistic structures that we haven't talked about is the temple. And the temple got Mm -hmm. started by David Best, who was going to build a structure. And then a friend who was going to build the structure with him died in a motorcycle accident on his way to Burning Man. So David dedicated the temple to those people who were lost. And the, the community embraced it in such a way that after that year, we knew that we needed a temple every year. So we moved the man burn to Saturday night, and then we have a temple burn on Sunday night. And the man burn is a celebration, and the temple burn is a spiritual event, uh, uh, very solemn. If you've ever witnessed 50,000 people being silent, It's one of the most powerful and remarkable things you'll ever experience. And that's the temple. Hmm. Crimson started the art department. That was to place the art in uh, proper locations so that that there was some organization around it. And, And that's called the artery. And now Kim Cook runs the artery. And we give out about a million dollars every year as grants to artists. I think they get up to 600 proposals every year. They winnow those down to a few hundred. Anything that looks like it could be a temple gets put into the temple group. (laughs) And then basically uh, there's a committee that reviews uh, all of the art and basically gives out the honorariums and and then someone is chosen to do the temple. What I, I find so fascinating about it is that when we're talking about Burning Man art, it's not the kind of art that you see in galleries, but it's the art that you see in dreams. It's a new genre. We've created a genre of art that that is mystical and powerful and whimsical, and some of it is parody. It's not traditional. Hmm. One of my favorite artists, Kate Roddenbush, she was probably 20, and she was photographing someone welding, working, and they ended up teaching her how to weld. And 
she's done art for Burning Man every year, and now she's an internationally known artist with with major pieces of art, public art in public squares and in front of big office buildings and so on. There's many, many other examples of artists that got their inspiration, began their art career, because Burning Man is a permission engine. Culture doesn't want you to do a lot of stuff. Culture wants you to be a consumer. And, and you come to Burning Man and you're outside of culture and you're given permission to do almost anything you want. If it doesn't harm anybody and it doesn't uh, impact their, their day, you can do and be whatever you want. That's the energy to create. It's funny because we've talked a little bit about how Burning Man art is different from quote unquote fine art or gallery art, but that's actually starting to change a little bit because, you know, one artist who's got his start at Burning Man is Leo Villarreal. He, he has a permanent uh, installation at the National Portrait Gallery. He has one in, in MoMA's collection. He's represented by the Blue Chip Global Pace Gallery. And the interesting thing is that Pace Gallery has been inspired by precisely his kind of work. This really, you know, immersive, experiential public art to create a whole new enterprise called Super Blue. I mean, it's like the cutting edge of art is to create these immersive art experiences. You know, I'm glad that it is, Andrew. Burning Man's influence in the world, I think, is important. And, and if it's through art to make people look at culture maybe in a different way, then that's really good. I can tell you a story about Leo, how he got started. Please do. When there wasn't any really big art back in the, the late 90s, the only thing you really saw was the man. And so you would go around for three or four days. The main way of, of getting direction was where the man was. So it, your sense of direction all had to do with that one thing sticking out of the playa. Because everything else was flat and vacant, you know. There's an essay in my book by Bill Fox that, that explains how the blank landscape needs a compass. And, and so the man was that compass. So after you burn the man down, you're lost, right? <laughs> so Leo got lost. Couldn't find his camp. He was a Yale uh, student. He was in some electronics field. And so, so the next year he goes, I'm going to put a pole up with a blinky light so I can find my camp after the man goes down. So he did. Then the year after that, it was a panel. And then a year after that, it was a programmable light panel. And then that started his art career. Wow. Isn't that great? And now he's doing buildings. He's doing bridges. He just finished the, I think it's seven bridges in London on the Thames. He did the Oakland Bay Bridge, which is iconic. And he believes in the principles of Burning Man. He's He's uh, never abandoned them. He's doing great. And he's on our board of directors, and it's an honor to have him and know him. Speaking of success stories, I thought one of the more intriguing cases that are made in your book is that Black Rock City itself is a piece of land art, you know, in the vein of something like Spiral Jetty. Do, do you see Black Rock City as land art? Oh, yeah. I saw it right from the beginning. In 98, when I got to do Rod Garrett's first curvilinear design, 
which only went from four o'clock to eight o'clock, not from two o'clock to 10 o'clock. So it was more open and serpentine. Mm-hmm. When I saw that on paper and I knew I was going to build it and I knew it would be seen from a satellite, I thought, oh my goodness, we're making art in a scale that is beyond anything that I've ever heard of. And I told that to my crew on purpose so that they knew that they were making history, that they were making art, to give them a sense of uh, value in the work that they were doing, and also to give us a common goal. I saw that, and I see it to this day. Hmm. The book, Compass of the Ephemeral, is uh, all about that, really. It's got 15 years of my aerial photographs of Black Rock City from each year. I was rereading the sci-fi author Bruce Sterling's 1996 Wired essay about Burning Man, which is an absolute classic. He says in there, quote, Burning Man is an art gig by tradition. Over the longer term, it's evolved into something else, maybe something like a physical version of the internet. And right now, that is kind of coming true in a way because obviously the, the coronavirus has shut down Burning Man. It was announced on April 10th that it was not going to happen in a physical edition this year, but instead it's going to happen in all these different kinds of virtual expressions of the, the Burning Man experience. What do you make of this transitional moment from a purely physical Burning Man to something more hybridized and and digital? I think that it's logical, you know, what's happened. It's not the South Bay, San Francisco tech community anymore. It's worldwide. iPhones are everywhere and we're all on Zoom now and different ways of communicating remotely. Hmm. Very interesting that the theme for this year, which was set last fall, well before the pandemic, was multiverse. So we have a theme called multiverse with many sophisticated technology people putting together their own versions of Burning Man to be played that week of the burn. And and so there's going to be many, many multiverses to get engaged with. You can walk around through this Burning Man style environment and then enter into these different kinds of Zoom rooms. One is a, a burlesque club. One of them, it's like costume parties. There's even one that's on Animal Crossing. I mean, the whole thing is just like a fractal where it's splitting off. And that seems almost extraordinarily generative. The, the, The thing that's kind of overwhelming to me is there's so many multiverses to choose from. And then once you get in one, there's so many rooms and different environments to partake. I don't I don't know how I would negotiate all that. I might look at some of it during the week, but on the night of the burn, I think I'm going to be outside with my feet on the ground and uh, I'll have my own burn. So I think many people will be doing that. Part of our mission is that the man will burn, and I think this year thousands of men will burn. And they'll burn all over the world. We have regionals in 60 countries. So... People are going to honor the Burning Man experience and the ethos in their own way. Some of them will will honor it by getting engaged with a a multiverse on the internet, and that's really cool too, but I'd rather do it physically myself. Burning Man has been 
terribly hit by COVID. It is really supported by a lot of its ticket sales. And I just wonder, what do you think is going to be the future of the physical event? Do you, do you think that this is going to you know, come back next year in full flower? Or do you think that this is maybe a transitional moment into something slightly different? Hard to look into the future, isn't it, Andrew? We don't really know. I mean, this is one pandemic, which maybe showed a crack into the flaws of a, of a culture that uses the resources of the earth in the wrong way. Hmm. Again, we're looking at all the options right now. Uh, all the right questions are being asked. So if there's a possibility of having Burning Man next year, we're up for it. Again, we've talked this entire time about the magic of Burning Man in the Black Rock Desert. You can't walk away from that. You need to, you need to find a way to do it if you can. And uh, that's what we're dedicated to do. Well, I hope your own private Burning Man experience will be a great one this year. I want to congratulate you on your book because it is an unusually riveting art book. I recommend people to search it out. So thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Will. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening and see you next week. <laughs>